You're listening to Consolidate That. Ukraine is my motherland. It is now under a savage attack by Russia. Ukraine is shielding Europe and the rest of the civilized world from Putin's barbaric aggression. Ukrainians are brave and effectively fighting back. Let's help. Make a donation to Armed Forces of Ukraine. Link is in the show notes. Hashtag stand with Ukraine. Welcome back to Consolidate That, Ivan. It's it's great to see you. Uh, last time that we were uh, chatting, we were in person together, which is a unique experience for us being such a remote team. So it's good to see you again. You look nice and uh, sun-kissed from our time in San Diego traveling around. <laughs> so I'm um, excited to chat with our guests though today. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Yep, Ryan, likewise. I was surprised to see again that you have legs uh, in this day and age. It's, uh, it's hard to imagine that people have legs. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a good time in California, but I'm very excited about the guest today. So we have Michael Greenberg. Mike is a veterinarian working at the intersection of animal fair clinical practice and technology. Clinically, he has worked in general practice, emergency care, and as medical director for high-quality, high-volume spay-neuter clinics. His work is in animal shelters and animal welfare, letting him to develop a passion for using data and technology to help improve operation efficiency and positive outcomes for pets and people. He now splits his time between clinical practice research and access to veterinary care and veterinary software development. That sounds just like my wheelhouse. All of those <laughs> things and the combination. It's like I can probably lay, lay my biography over this. Cool. So, so we're going to talk about the um, uh, quantification of the access to veterinary care. So Mike, very excited to have you here on the show. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Yeah. Happy to be here. So access to care is, is very dear topic to us because one of the two missions that we have at, uh, at Galaxy is actually providing access to care to people where and when they need it uh, and pets. And uh, But access to care could be sliced in this day and age into several planes, sure. I would say. One of them is just general access to care because we don't have enough vets, uh, techs, or everybody else. Because So that's a challenge. All the clinics are having three plus weeks uh, in a wait time. Emergencies are six to eight hours. But then there's access to care due to financial constraints. So uh, just to kind of get us yeah. started, in which plane do you play? And sure. uh, and what, uh, what, what makes you excited in the morning uh, thinking about it? Yeah. That? So when I think about access to care, uh, and I like how you put it plain. It's a, a more positive note than I often talk about the barriers. Um, and I'm going to, I'll probably slip into talking about barriers because I'm so used to it. But I think about uh, three or four things. I think about cost because that's the most frequently cited uh, barrier to care that people uh, mention in surveys and, and research, things like that. I think about location slash logistics and the the presence of clinics which sort of piled into that is the the number of people uh, available to provide care so what we sometimes talk about the veterinary employee density or veterinary employee availability and uh with that transportation you know transportation is there a clinic there and when I get there, is there somebody to provide me service? So all those things are sort of the second bucket. So I was gonna say, you you provide this service through your group, right? The Veterinary Care Accessibility Project. 
Yeah. So I should sort of kick things off, um, kind of backing up yeah. a little bit. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Veterinary Care Accessibility Project. Uh, myself, my research partner, Dr. Sue Neal, uh, founded the project last year, and it came about out of curiosity and necessity. Uh, Sue is this amazing researcher. She has one foot in animal welfare and she is a her doctorate is in public administration and geographic information systems gis so she has this really deep technical and policy background that i don't have and then i bring the veterinary side of it and enough statistics and tech curiosity to be dangerous sometimes we were doing some research in access to care at one of my previous jobs we were working together and said, well, there must be some quantified, some metrics out there that can help us quantify access to care across the country. Let's go look for them. And we tried and we looked and we tried more and we looked more and we didn't find anything and said, man, I guess we're going to have to make this. So this project came together initially uh, for us to to create the veterinary care accessibility score, which I can talk about in a minute. And from there, as is usually the case with research, the answers brought more questions and so on and so forth. So now we've delved into other things as well. But yeah, all this is, is through the veterinary care accessibility project. Um, and getting to those barriers to care, the planes on which we, we uh, look at this stuff. Uh, cost is, you know, really the first one because it's the most frequently cited. The next is logistics. So are there veterinary clinics in an area? What's the travel situation? Can people travel to get there? Can they access a car? Can they walk there? Things like that. And then when they get there, is there someone there to serve them? So Ivan, you mentioned the veterinary shortages, uh, veterinary staff shortages we have. Um, so we look at that and then the last but not least, you know, final barrier we look at, which is a little bit harder to quantify are cultural uh, differences and boundaries. So uh, that can encompass a lot of things, but it's uh, plain and simple as language. When I get to a clinic, do I, you know, can I, can I communicate with people and do when I get to a clinic, do I feel judged? Am I in some way being being judged for you know cultural norms and things like that? Uh, so those are the those are the things we look at and, and think about when we're working on these things. So it, at the high level, what you're describing is an extremely valuable information for not only the overall mission of you know providing care to to pets, but it's also for the companies that are building are requiring practices or for veterinarians in general where the intersection of the need with the with the lack of access is that the the theme of the project or is there a business model attached to it uh, that helps you to support it yeah good question so when we we think about and our audience because we we want to do research but part and parcel to our mission is doing research that actually informs uh decisions you know to actually affect change one of the audience members, if you will, is what you just mentioned, service providers. So people who are acquiring or establishing clinics, we we hope that they can see these areas with low access 
not as liabilities, but as potential business opportunities. Um, I don't necessarily have the business background to say, and this is how you do it, but we do have the background to say, here are some spots where people need care and don't have it. So service providers are one audience. Another is the animal welfare world. The animal welfare industry has um, taken on a big role in the last few years at looking at access to care. Um, obviously for decades, it was all about animal sheltering and shelter outcomes and uh, things aren't perfect there yet, but they've improved dramatically. And now looking at access to care is really the biggest challenge in animal welfare you know, of our, of our current generation. The next audience member we think about are policymakers. So can we put legislation, laws, rules, et cetera, in place to make access to care easier? And finally, we look at researchers, um, other people adding to this body of work and how can we make tools that, that help inform, inform their work. So we, you know, when we talk about the access to care through the, uh, let's say Galaxy yeah. Lens, uh, we're concerned about the uh, the lack of veterinarians mm -hmm. and then also, well, kind of both of those topics and the lack of funds potentially. Do you think that there is a, or did you stumble upon the, the tactic or the strategy uh, for the organizations to deal with this? Because one of the, one of the sort of quantified uh, goals that we have in front of us as an organization is reducing economic euthanasia as close to zero as yeah. we can. And um, do you did you bump into any organizations that incorporated into the for-profit organizations that uh, incorporated any tactics to kind of combat that? Sure. So, <clears throat> yes, I can point to one in specific, who, by the way, would be a great podcast guest for you. Um, there's a, a group called Open Door Veterinary Collective. Uh, and they're not the only example of a clinic like this, but they're one that really rises uh, to the surface. Uh, they're started by uh, a woman, woman named Saint, Amy St. Arnaud, who was in the not-for-profit veterinary world for a long time, but then said, I'm gonna start a for-profit group of clinics to show that you can provide increased access to care uh, and do so in a for-profit model. I think for a long time, people there were people, I should say, who said, well, you can only, you know, you're only able to provide care to quote unquote, those people um, because you can get grants and things like that. And, and Amy said, no, we're going to, we're going to do this in a for-profit model. And she set up two clinics, uh, one's up in Ohio and one's down in North Carolina. And through a number of different policies and practices, they're able to increase access to care, decrease economic euthanasia. Uh, and just as one example, uh, they have, if, if I remember right, I don't know what all, all they are, uh, 14 different alternative payment methods that people can use that are not just care credit. That's just one example. People are doing this stuff and I feel like it's an exciting time. I think there are other models out there that we've encountered, um, things like the walk-in you know, wellness clinic and things like that. But Open Door really, really jumps to mind as a, as a great example. 
So we're um, um, we're we're looking at at two different things that we are doing, and I'm and I'm wondering in your uh, sort of research or what you're seeing. Have you seen this before? But one of the things that we're leveraging is the membership model. So mm-hmm. essentially, by uh, by having a low payment sort of monthly membership, you can get access to care. Uh, at least for consultancy, which is basically your consult yep. fees waived, so you can uh, you can access veterinarian anytime and through uh, telemedicine, which is a big technological background for it to um, to access the areas that are more remote and even decide do I need to drive three hours yeah. to see a veterinarian. Um, so that's sort of a teletriage combination with the telemedicine. And then the second piece that we're now doing, uh, which we plan actually later in our strategy, but we had to do it earlier, um, is our nonprofit arm. So we created a nonprofit arm that essentially will raise funds. Um, and uh, right now we're actually helping uh, people in Ukraine. They're in the middle of the okay. war and can't get access to care. And we have over 200 volunteers helping through telemedicine wow. technology, Ukrainian uh, people, over a thousand people a week wow. um, to... Uh, to actually provide care. So this is this is a model that we we said okay, we have an example. We wanted to do it later, but because the war started and we have no well, I'm Ukrainian yeah. and uh, we have uh, quite a few employees in Ukraine and it's been phenomenally successful over there. So we want to replicate the same model yeah. here and essentially uh the nonprofit arm is uh, our plan is basically to raise funds through different initiatives and then having that to pay for services and also then as a profit organization uh when there's someone in need for care but they can't afford it then then donate uh sort of the full cost of the procedure but then get a tax advantage on it so that's the that's the sort of the plan that we have for that uh, to kind of do the combination of doing good by not completely subsidizing things, but actually getting yeah. the benefit from the, the tax perspective. Have you seen anything like that? So yeah. from the tax perspective, that's at least in, in my experience, that's unique. And I think it's, I think it's a great, great idea. Um, certainly in, in our research and in some of the work that we've done, to try to establish access to care programs. That idea of, we don't need to subsidize the whole thing. We might just need to give a little bit of help is, is central, um, I believe, to us helping to figure this, this problem out or to meet, to meet the challenge. I think for years and years, you know, in the, the years that I've been you know, in the trenches and clinical practice doing this work, there was this notion that, oh, we have to subsidize everything 100%. And needless to say, that's not really sustainable and it's not really necessary. I think that one of the things that we've seen with you know, speaking, speaking to models, as you mentioned before, um, is the idea that we don't have to shoot for an average client transaction of $0 to address access to care. We just have to shoot for something lower than you guys know it off the top of your head's probably better, certainly better than I do. But last I heard it was in the 180 to 200 bucks or something like that. Um, if we can drive that down to some X that's between zero and 200, we're helping out. And I think that, you know, the models that you, you just mentioned will certainly help to do that. Mentioned, by the way, with the, the idea of telemedicine, we're big proponents of it from a cost reduction standpoint, 
one of the things that uh, we're about to embark on some research on is trying to look at the 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 efficacy of reducing cost and and unnecessary i always underline four times unnecessary visits to the vet um, through through telemedicine and so i think that's a, a great way to go from a sort of wonky research standpoint when we look at the access to care problem at its core to some degree it's a supply and demand curve problem and if we want to increase access we really only have two options we can increase supply or we can reduce demand we talk a lot about increasing supply which is important but i believe that uh teletriage and telemedicine can reduce again unnecessary demand you mentioned the idea of you know do i need to drive three hours to the clinic um it's always a bummer for all parties involved when that person shows up and says, you know, this really could have waited till Monday or you could have, you know, done such and such at home. So I think both those things are really good, um, good things to think about. And, and then on the contrary, then that person will be embarrassed next time. And those are the ones that show up and say, my dog was vomiting blood for five days. Should I come? Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then you and then you have the dog who is vomiting blood sitting in the waiting room waiting for the dog who doesn't need to be there to get out. And so on. and then everyone's frustrated, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, telehealth, teletriage. Um, let's let's get on that. <laughs> Mike, is there is there a way that you all quantify? I know we talked we used that word at the beginning, sure. but a way that you really look at putting numbers around each one of these things to be able to figure out where the care is, where it needs to be, sure. you know, in any research you guys have done around that. Yeah. So um, I mentioned the veterinary care accessibility score. That was the first, uh, you know, project that we put forth under the under VCAP, the veterinary care accessibility project. And the VCAS, the veterinary care accessibility score is what's called it. It's an index. It's a ranked index that takes variables related to all those barriers or to, uh, at, at least a good handful of them and digest them into a single number. So it's similar to, you know, a lot of indices that we're used to hearing about, you know, consumer price index and, and things like that, where it digests a bunch of numbers and puts, puts you know, one, one number as a, summarizes them, I should say, with, with a single number. Um, and so the VCAS has going into it, variables surrounding poverty, surrounding income, surrounding uh, access to transportation, language. And on the veterinary side, its main veterinary, you know, I'll call supply variable, is the number of employees uh, per 1,000 pet owning households. So by looking, bringing all those things together uh, and applying a single number, we're able to start painting a picture literally so um, there's maps on our on our website uh, it's access to vetcare.org uh, start painting a picture of exactly what you said where care is and where care isn't refining that constantly we're trying to you know improve it but that was our that was our initial stab at it and and it's been interesting so there, there are other metrics that you mentioned um and uh, one that was interesting is the uh, uh, than the number of veterinary employees. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So one of the things that <clears throat> has been so 
I like doing this stuff because I get to learn. It's, I'm one of those people who really loved being in vet school. Uh, I just like learning stuff. And one of the things I love about working with Sue is all that I've gotten to learn about, you know, how to go about doing this research that happens at scale. How do we look at something across the whole country? And the one of the first questions we always ask from a really practical standpoint is, where can we get the data? Because in a practical sense, we can't go out and survey, you know, a hundred million people every time we want an answer to something. We have to go seeing what are there, what are some available data sources? And I've been really uh, happily surprised at what is available out there and what we can take and slice and dice to find to find answers. And we don't have to slice and dice that much. So one of the uh, a data set that we uh, access through um, ESRI, uh, ESRI tools, ArcGIS, uh, involves just characteristics of all businesses across the United States. Um, and with that, we filter down to veterinary hospitals, uh, veterinary clinics, and we can see how many employees do you have? So it's, it's, it's that, it's that simple. We don't see how many vets you have, but we see how many veterinary, <clears throat> excuse me, how many veterinary employees we have. So we looked at that at the county level, we could have chosen other geographies, but the county kind of makes sense to a lot of people. And it's, it's granular enough without being uh, so granular as to get into privacy issues and things like that. Uh, we looked at, number of veterinary employees at the county level and then normalize that to, in this case, the number of pet owning, pet owning households to be able to compare, uh, you know, one area to another that might have vastly different number of households, but creating that, that normalized metric uh, allows us to compare, to compare places. And we saw, it wasn't too surprising, but we saw you know, pretty wild variations across across the country and i think that uh, one of the things that we that is important to mention is that we never are trying to set a, a benchmark i i think it would be foolish for us to say you know what you should have four veterinarians per thousand household that's ideal we don't know what ideal is that's not um maybe we will at some point but we certainly don't know that now but what we can say definitively based on our work is What's the mean? You know, what's the arithmetic average? Because that's just a number, right? Just add that up. And one of the things that we did once we looked at all, you know, the counties and then did it by state, uh, we did just ask the question, what's the gap to the mean? So about a thousand counties of the roughly 3,500 counties in the country, about a thousand counties have a deficiency of some sort, deficiency in terms of <clears throat> getting getting to the mean. If we look at the state level, that deficiency is about 25,000 veterinary employees. Um, if we look at the county level, that number actually rises to about 60,000. There's, if you sort of look at it, there's math that makes sense as to why the county level would be higher. The state level, you can have a state where you have some counties who are doing great. They might have a, a super, you know, glut of veterinary employees. 
And so they sort of smooth out the data. But when you look at the county level and look more granularly, the, uh, the places that are challenged really start to rise to the surface. But take home messages, when we look at the number of vet employees per thousand pets, and then look at just the absolute numbers of veterinary employees who might be needed to meet the median, um, we've hit a number of in the 50 to 60,000 range, which to me, I, I had to go back and do the math like six times because I was like, I knew this was a problem, but man, this is the problem. Uh, importantly, like I always talk about when we, we talk about these numbers, we're talking about veterinary employees. That's anyone who works in a veterinary hospital. It's not veterinarians, but I would kind of put the question, part of the question back to you all with your, with your background. My understanding has always been that you look at roughly a one to four or one to five ratio of veterinarians to support staff uh, in, in a hospital. And so just doing the back of the envelope math, that still puts us at about 10,000 veterinarians short of bringing everybody up to the mean. And that's a, that's a hard, a hard number to, uh, to swallow. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Um, I wonder if there is uh, an additional data point that you can bring into this to actually to get to normal, uh, which you mentioned before, there's hard to is uh, overlap that with a wait period uh, when you get appointment in a particular area, because maybe that will give you an ideal area. Maybe you want to be able to book an appointment within the same week. Right. And then depending on that mixed with this data point, maybe you will find the sort of the ideal is to have X number of veterinary professionals per you know, square uh, or per county, yeah. because you can get appointment the same week. But that's just my. That's what I was. Yeah, uh, no, and I think that's a, that's a good example of when we start trying to look at benchmarking. Uh, what would mm -hmm. you know ideal start to look like? And if, you know, that's a that's a hard number right there. Can everybody who wants an appointment get an appointment within a week? That's a it's a reasonable sort of benchmark to put forth. I like that. Yeah, might be interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we always ask, well, uh, one question before we wrap up. If uh, anybody wants to find out uh, more information about it or access to the information that you're researching, because I can see how this is highly applicable to the veterinary business uh, as individual veterinarians that want to pursue uh, building a hospital in an area with a demand, as well as the consolidators that are growing by de novo or you know, looking into purchasing practices. So where do they find all of this wisdom <laughs> and the information and how can they access? Sure. So our website is hopefully pretty easy to remember. It's access to vetcare.org. So if you just go to access to vetcare.org, uh, the maps that I referenced and the, you know, publications that we're, we're putting out are all up there. So access to vetcare.org. That's great, Mike. And then outside of all of the incredible things that you guys have put together, what would be a book that you would recommend for others to read to sort of uh, gain some other knowledge? Yeah. So I was thinking about this. Uh, actually, recently, I, was, uh, I ride bikes a lot when I was on long rides. Sometimes there's not much to talk about after a while. Um, and I was talking to my friends about this. One book I would look at uh, that I love is Temple Grandin. Uh, animals make us human. Uh, I just love just all, all this, just the story of humans and animals and how old that story is and, and just the truth in that, uh, 
that statement, how animals make us human. So that always inspires me, especially if I get a little down about, um, about these things. And the other book that is sort of along the same lines and has always been an inspiration uh, to me is actually not a book, but a movie um, called Fast, Cheap and Out of Control, which is an Errol Morris documentary from, it's probably 40 years old at this point, but it's about uh, our human relationships with nature, how it can control us and how we try to control it. And at the same time, it's about utilitarian philosophy, how we can you know, achieve uh, the greatest good uh, for the greatest number and not let perfect be the, you know, the enemy of good, as it's often said. So those are the two, those are two things that inspire me and check them out. That's awesome. Those are great. Well, Mike, thank you so much. I think there's been, I say a ton of great information and a lot of fantastic things that people are going to be uh, flooding the website with <laughs> because you've got a lot of really cool resources there. Um, again, we always appreciate having uh, unique people from around the industry join us. So thank you so much thank you. For, for joining us on the show Thank today. you. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at vetintegrations.com. 